back to Peace in Their Time, episode 16, A Jittery Start. Last week, we got acquainted with the British Empire and its internal conditions up to the end of the Great War. Now we'll be going into the challenges it finds itself embroiled in during the start of the post-war years. And there were always going to be problems. More money, more colonies, more problems, and all that. Start things off on the international front. The obsession of the UK during the 20s was not actually Germany or even really the rising United States. Germany had been laid low, and the US was uninterested in overt challenges to Britain, unless it was business-related. No, the big problem for the UK coming out of World War I was the Soviet Union. While still chaotic as all hell on account of the ongoing civil war, the Soviets managed to resurrect the great Eurasian menace. For those of you not on the up-and-up for late 1800s politics, the British and Russian empires had actually been fairly bitter rivals. Russia had nursed a pathological craving for expansion, uh, into East Asia, Central Asia, and the Balkans especially. This worried the British immensely, as this put them on course for either India or the Suez Canal, which itself was the key to India. So, naturally, the British expanded northward to meet and check them. What resulted was an uneasy stalemate, as both powers reached their limits in areas like Persia, Afghanistan, and Tibet. This rivalry was only paused when the Germans barged drunkenly and angrily onto the world scene, and managed to antagonize everybody so badly that the French managed to convince the Brits and Ruskies to bury the hatchet. This understanding lasted up until Lenin and his crew took over, when, overnight, the Great Game of Asia from the 1800s was back on. Except this time, the British had the added apprehension of the Marxist ideology, creating a fifth column among their own subjects in the colonies. Sensitive to potential Soviet incursions southwards, the British would take a pointed role in trying to isolate the nascent revolutionary government. In regards to Germany, the UK, oddly enough, became one of their greatest champions when it would come to reparations and being integrated into the new liberal order that prevailed after 1919. I say odd on account of all the dead bodies between them, but the British public would prove to be sympathetic to their German counterparts, which would give German diplomats way more breathing room in summits than you would otherwise expect. That and the UK's leadership saw Germany as the linchpin to Europe, and wanted to prevent any communist revolution there. Further abroad, the United States was clearly on the rise, and was the only other nation with a comparable reach in the world. There were fears of a rivalry between them, although both powers saw little benefit from it. But it was a fact that the superpower of the New World was now a global player, despite all their protests to the contrary. Japan was still technically a treaty ally of the UK, but that treaty was set to expire, and it would become a pressing question as to what would happen to that alliance. The desire of the Japanese to establish themselves as the equals of the other great powers, and their willingness to carve out an empire of their own in the Pacific, gave the British pause. There wasn't any great panic about the relationship just yet, but it would be accurate to say that with Germany and Russia knocked out as Asian players for now, Japanese were suddenly the odd man out, a counterweight employed by the British that no longer had anything to counter. As far as continental relations went, well, the British didn't have a whole lot of tangible commitments. Oh, don't get me wrong, they had a lot of interests, pretty much everywhere, just not a whole lot of commitments. In the words of Lloyd George, 
the realm of Europe beyond Germany and Italy was a strange place, of which the British knew little. The center of Europe was more of a French concern anyway. And while relations between the British and French chilled in a pretty big way during the 20s, they never approached open hostility. France didn't have anything Britain desperately wanted, and the UK was coveted as a security partner by the French. It's going to be really sad watching their mutual interests converge, but still never resulting in coordinated action between the two. Uh, the instinct among the British to avoid anything tying them down was just that strong. So, the UK put itself in the position where it could act as an arbiter on the continent, but was not beholden to any single nation's interests, even with what should have been a blood brother following World War I. This policy of self-interest was the germ of the mentality that would lead to appeasement down the road, but for now would serve merely as an impediment to establishing a lasting equilibrium in Europe. Suffice to say, all that was a very quick overview of where the UK stands, internationally, going into our narrative. By virtue of being the biggest of the world empires, they had dealings and interests with everyone. And this isn't just mindless historical detail I'm kind of lobbing at you. Uh, real people who lived and breathed had to deal with this hulking, overstretched machine. They had to reconcile the fact that they were supposed to be the biggest and most far-reaching power on Earth, with the fact that they were now on the back foot financially and so war-weary that whatever military muscle hadn't gotten buried in Flanders was considered far too precious to just throw around like in the good old days. The three or four decades preceding World War I had been looked back upon as a golden age for the Empire. That was a period of expansion and clear sense of purpose. That purpose was amazingly oppressive and based on both racism and greed, but it was at least clear for the conquerors. Now the world had been turned upside down, and the ideas of nationalism and power politics that had so dominated before had proven to be terribly hollow for most people. To all the old problems of empire were now added the burdens building a new future. Uh, the flare-ups from all that, though, are still a little bit into the future. There were more pressing difficulties as the UK exits the wartime footing it had so uncomfortably stood for the past four years. As I covered in the last episode, the first post-war parliamentarian elections had taken place in late 1918 and had preserved the coalition government of the wartime years, albeit at the price of the Liberal Party being split and badly discredited. It had also introduced the concept of red scaring into the British political scene. The upper class had been really genuinely spooked by the Russian Revolution, and they took their first steps towards painting the Labour Party as a bunch of red fifth columnists. Political mouthpieces at the time beat the drum that Labour were a raving pack of Leninists. The accusations, though, were a little tame at this point, as there wasn't really any real oppression, uh, just a lot of name-calling. It is notable, though, that this was a case where one political bloc started painting the other as basically foreign agents. Uh, maybe they didn't do it that overtly just yet, but they implied a whole bunch that if you were with labor, that your loyalties might lie elsewhere than your homeland. This was a line of thought that would evolve and become more overt as time went on. Despite all that, labor settled into the role of the leading opposition party, 
though they would have to wait a little longer to really break through in terms of seats held in Parliament. The government, set to usher in a new post-war age, consisted of a great many old faces from the previous generation. That holdover distinction is going to be important for how politics were going to go. Keep in mind that these men, aware but isolated from the misery of the war, were coming away as total victors. They had few lessons to learn from the experience, other than that their constituencies needed to be taken care of and social deference given to those who had sacrificed. And while the average Briton was obviously scarred by the experience regardless of how they participated, the nation was still intact and functioning. Leadership was under the impression that after a period of healing, they would go back to being the world power brokers they had been before 1914. This is important because you have a ruling class interested in turning back the clock, and because of the death toll during the war, uh, there was no new generation of leaders coming to prominence to stop and say that wasn't going to happen. Whereas older politicians always keep an eye on their younger fellows, always sensitive to a threat in the hierarchy, there wasn't much of a threat to them at this point, and there wouldn't be for some time to come. Now you have Lloyd George as Prime Minister in a peacetime government for the first time. He had served with boundless energy during the war, both before and after becoming Prime Minister. His management style married that energy with a ruthless pragmatism. He cut through bureaucracy and the deliberations of his peers or cabinet members in search of timely solutions to whatever problem the UK faced on any given day. And when you take into account just how many problems beset the UK during the war, you can appreciate what Lloyd George brought to the table. The problem with his leadership style is that when the stakes are as high as they were during wartime, you can accept a person making split decisions or disregarding procedures. When peacetime rolls around, though, and the urgency wears off, it rapidly became a source of unbearable irritation for those that worked under him. And that might be putting it mildly, as he was widely regarded as a tyrant, and his ability to come to a decision oftentimes was so swift that it left his subordinates terrified. Decisive leadership is an admirable trait when compared to a plotting one, but Lloyd George definitely operated on the irresponsibly reckless side of things. What I'm getting at is that he made a lot of enemies, and while he led the coalition, the conservatives and their leader, Bonar Law, were not beholden to him and no longer had the pressure of a war keeping them in check. One of the early questions the UK faced after the war was the role of government power and its responsibility for taking care of its people. If you weren't in the trenches or losing a family member to said trenches, the war hadn't actually been that bad. The nature of Britain's society before the war had been terribly unequal, with the welfare state kept to a minimum and workers' rights being more of a talking point for the early Labour Party more than anything else. War, though, has a tendency to change these kinds of things, and during that time, the government had intervened far more than could be expected of conservatives or liberals previously. Indeed, the war had demanded every effort be thrown into winning it, and there had been an enforcement of rationing which had actually raised the level of nutrition for many, as it guaranteed a certain amount of food for the average citizen. Yes, life for the lowlier workers in the country had been bad enough that rationing was actually great for them. And then there was the rise of the trade unions. To be sure, unions had existed among workers before the war, but like most anywhere else workers tried to organize, 
the employers fought stubbornly against them. During the war, however, the government absolutely needed everybody on the same page in the factories, and lost man hours to protesting working conditions could not be accepted. So, the UK government endorsed and actively encouraged workers all over the country to form or join existing unions in which to organize themselves. Yes, the employers certainly blanched at this prospect, but it meant that workers could put forward their grievances as a unit so they could be more effectively addressed. This was acceptable to the politicians as wartime needs trumped everything else. I spoke last episode about the direct involvement of government in the economy. The railroads were directly taken under central administration, and any business close to the armaments industries had to operate with the guidance coming from the government. By the time the war had ended, this control of so much of the economy had led many to assume that there would be eminent and permanent nationalization of the bulk of the UK's industries, as among workers, this state of affairs seemed better than toiling for indifferent bosses. Uh, the number of persons directly employed by the government had doubled, or nearly even tripled, with numbers still rising ever further. All this was a massive change, as now the government was actually a more visible part of the people's lives. Before, it had primarily been the purview of the upper and middle classes. Now it reached out all across the nation. As a result, people became more interested in the goings-on in the government, given that they now had a stake in it. That the voting laws had been relaxed immediately after the war now meant a massive influx of voters could have their voices heard at the ballot box. And the average Briton certainly did not expect to suddenly end all this public engagement now that the war had been won. Going back to the increase in trade union membership, this sudden influx of organized workers played directly into the Labor Party's hands. In just a few turbulent years, masses of workers were exposed to an environment that encouraged their participation in decision-making. Beforehand, many would simply have accepted their lot in the workplace and scraped for whatever wages they could get. Now they were part of a network of fellows who spoke in terms of equality, of the common laborer deserving a life of dignity and prosperity, the same as management. Added to this, the sacrifices made not just on the battlefront, but the home front as well, nudged workers towards higher expectations for their efforts. This did not suit the leading politicians at all. The conservatives did not like the idea of workers demanding more while also expecting the state to enforce a certain quality of life. The liberals were disquieted because no matter how socially open they were to those of the lower classes, they were staunch capitalists. They believed firmly that whatever course the market charted, even if it included exploitive wages and working conditions, was acceptable and would merely correct itself later. When or how that would happen, they were a little hazy on. The older generation of leaders, though, would have to reckon sooner or later with this newly empowered labor movement. Life in 1919 Britain was a year of turmoil, both good and bad. The good news was that the economy was booming as with war's end, there was an expectation for a return to civilian consumption. And as the UK did not see any fighting on its own home turf, all their infrastructure was perfectly intact. Compare this to, say, France, which faced a steep reconstruction bill. The reason for this boom was an immediate shift away from wartime production and back into civilian goods. Much of Europe had been damaged, and reconstruction was badly needed, which to the business class smelled like an opportunity. 
Lloyd George was eager to divest the state of its economic controls and began returning private management to the executives. This ran counter to much of that conventional wisdom I mentioned earlier about eminent nationalization of the industrial sector, but the expectations of the public didn't count for much when free trade was on the line. The re-empowered corporations set to work at attempting to roll back the clock as well. Huge orders for manufactured goods were placed, and many large industries started to be consolidated with an eye towards maximizing output. Keep in mind that the UK had been the first industrialized country, and was an unregulated one at that. There had been previously a jumble of firms that had sprung up, many of which continued to use outdated equipment and manufacturing practices. The days of state control allowed for a little spring cleaning as the smaller fish got gobbled up by the bigger ones. All this sudden flurry of production was the core of the economic boom. Businesses figured that demand abroad for goods to replace what had been lost would spike, and ergo all the economic links in the chain that fed those factories saw a great upswing. Little problem with this that I'll touch on when the emerging bubble pops. The markets these businesses were counting on had been devastated, and while they certainly could use the new goods, they didn't really have the money to pay for them, which was kind of a big issue there. Now, elsewhere in the country, a demobilization of the army was a top priority, and even then, uh, there were incidents of soldiers threatening strikes when it appeared as if it wouldn't progress fast enough. It wasn't anything too bad but a clear sign that the population was through with military adventurism for the time being. The demobilization created a bit of apprehension as the question arose as to where the new civilians would be put to work. Unfortunately, the primary answer to that question was that all the women who had gone into the workforce during the war made for a perfect opportunity to open up some positions, and a year after the war ended saw 750,000 let go and return to domestic life. In the city of Glasgow in January 1919, the general apprehension over employing returning soldiers accelerated into a full-blown street battle. On January 27th, the unions called for a reduction of the work week to 40 hours from 47. This wasn't just a workers' rights thing. It was also a solution to returning servicemen. If everybody worked fewer hours, that would open up spots for other workers that needed jobs. By the 30th, the ranks of strikers had grown to around 40,000, these numbers bolstered greatly by the local shipbuilding industry. The market-first government felt threatened by this, and the strikers unfurling red flags in the streets really didn't help their perceptions. There was a panic that if revolutionary action flared up now, that it would spread through the entire country like wildfire. The local authorities in Glasgow called in a military intervention, and London certainly didn't turn them down. On the 31st, almost 30,000 strikers were in George Square in the center of Glasgow. The local police had organized to counter them. And by counter, I mean they launched a baton charge into the masses. They got in some vintage police clubbing before realizing that 30,000 was actually a really big crowd, and they beat a hasty retreat. Skirmishes dispersed through the streets and carried on into the next day. Starting on February 1st, the troops started moving in. The soldiers were not expected to actually engage with the strikers. They simply occupied major public areas to ensure the city wasn't shut down. This tactic of containment worked, as it split off the strikers from the very places they needed to be striking in. And as more soldiers trickled into the city, they started occupying more and more of it. Supposedly, victorious Britons were treated to the sight of machine gun nests 
and tanks deployed onto common city streets, which must have been a disquieting sight. It was effective, though, and over the course of the next week and a half, the strikers were choked out and dispersed. Strikes would flare up elsewhere, though this was the big one for 1919. As you might have noticed, nothing was actually resolved. It was just a forced clearing of the streets through military intervention, and the resentments that caused everything lingered on. There was also a disturbance in the coal industry down south, but Lloyd George personally saw to that little problem with a politician's classic ploy of stalling for time before he could get off the ground. In January 1919, the Miners' Federation submitted a proposal of a 30-hour workweek and a wage increase. That might sound insane to a modern listener, but one, this was coal mining, and that has always been a body-breaking profession where you steadily have your humanity stripped away from you. And two, we modern folks are a broken people who have no conception of what a decent work week actually is supposed to look like. If the miners didn't get their demands, they had already decided they would strike. The owners obviously were uninclined to accept the proposal. So, they rung up their PM, and Lloyd George went to the workers with an offer. Don't go on strike just yet, and the government would set up an inquiry in what needed to be done to provide a square solution to all parties. The workers agreed to this. Now, obviously trusting a government leader who, during his entire career, was in full favor of deregulation in all things, might seem crazy. I'll admit, I can't really explain the thought process of the miners here. I'll go ahead and offer the half-hearted explanation that the coalition government had supported the workers organizing for the past several years and had intervened to create a better standard of living for them up to this point. And it didn't hurt that the coalition government had led them to victory in the war. The problem with this thinking was that all those good things were done in wartime for the specific purpose of winning. And Lloyd George had won his fight. He wasn't about to start turning society upside down now. In retrospect, the inquiry and commission that oversaw it was obviously a ploy for time. It did successfully create a media circus, though. As part of the investigation, representatives of the workers were able to question mine owners on the record and in every detail. All of a sudden, the money classes had to answer publicly to their workers. There were full published accounts of working conditions, workers' pay, and how much the owners took for themselves. For a few weeks, the free market was on trial. Never before had an entire industry been called to account like this. It was only on March 20th, about two and a half months later, that the inquiry offered its first set of different recommendations. One heavily favored the miners. One saw a slight increase in pay and reduction in hours. The third averaged the two. The government and miners were in favor of the compromise recommendation. The second round of the commission, delivered on June 20th, was even more disjointed. Four reports were submitted for consideration, having recommendations ranging from full nationalization of the coal industry to a confirmation of total private enterprise. Ultimately, no one report gained a majority among the commission, although most did vote for plans calling for nationalization of the mining industry. The government, though, took the split decision as an excuse to implement none of the, rec- of the recommendations and call the whole thing a wash. The workers were given a seven-hour workday, but that was about it. By this time, though, the commission had served its purpose, and most of the public had lost interest in the story, as by this time in 1919, 
the whole Versailles peace deal was grabbing all the headlines. Some miners did go on strike in July, but Lloyd George seized on it as an example of the workers trying to strong-arm the government after a fair and impartial commission did not go their way. It also served as an opportunity for Lloyd George to declare in August 1919 that the question of nationalization was dead. The state controls put into place the past few years would not be enhanced further, and indeed, they could look towards a future of being rolled back. Now, this whole episode was a clever bit of brushing a problem under the carpet, but Lloyd George wound up successfully alienating all parties. The mine owners had been publicly put on trial and humiliated. After all, exploiting people nearly to death was perfectly within the bounds of polite society, as long as that fact didn't make its way into the papers. And while the government had protected them from the worst of what could have happened, the owners really didn't enjoy how it all played out. The workers, of course, had been cheated up and down, and even when most of the commission sided with them, they could barely get a break. This further eroded the support of the Liberal Party from both ends of the political spectrum. And as they were ruling in coalition with the Conservatives, this started creating a vulnerable position for Lloyd George. This vulnerability was only exacerbated by a crisis that had been decades, nay even centuries in the making, finally coming to a head. Next week, the British endure a crisis that will end with one of its oldest conquests breaking away and its government endlessly distracted in a futile attempt to hang on. Join me next week as we take a little interlude to Ireland. And as always, thank you very much for listening. Mm -hmm.